You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. The death and life of Aida Hernandez reveals the human consequences of militarizing what was once a more forgiving border. He also shows us that the heroes of our current immigration wars are less likely to be perfect paragons of virtue than complex, flawed human beings who deserve justice and empathy all the same. Aaron Bobro Strain is a professor of politics at Whitman College, where he teaches courses dealing with food, immigration, and the U.S.-Mexico border. He is the author of White Bread, A Social History of the Store-Bought Loaf and Intimate Enemies, Landowners, Power, and Violence in Chiapas. In the 1990s, he worked on the U.S.-Mexico border as an activist and educator, and he is a founding member of the Walla Walla Immigrant Rights Coalition in Washington State. After the reading, we'll have a question and answer session, as well as a book signing with our friends from the Ivy Bookshop. Now, please give a warm welcome to Aaron Bobro Strain. Thank you, VNA, for that lovely uh, introduction. Thank you. Um, and, um, I'm going to take this off. So I come to the East Coast, and I feel like I have to be more formal. <laughs> you guys all look really comfortable. <laughs> so, um, thank you all for coming out on this really dreary, rainy day full of traffic and impeachment. Um, it's really good to see anyone here. Um, actually, as a writer going around and doing these things, I am always so ridiculously grateful to see anyone in the audience <laughs> that I'm not biologically related to. <laughs> and today, because this is Baltimore, actually I'm really grateful that half of the audience I actually am biologically related to. <laughs> so call a shout out to the front row here. Um, that's great. Um, and a special shout out, uh, well, many, many different shout outs here, but um, uh, one to my cousin Kristen Strain, who runs uh, an organization here in town called the Tahiri um, uh, Justice Center, um, which is a really important local organization, and if you don't know about it, um, you really ought to, and it works with uh, asylum seekers and uh, other migrants uh, fleeing gender-based violence. Um, folks who have stories that are as um, kind of uh, terrible and uh, uh, inspiring as the one we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so they could definitely uh, use your support. Um, you should check them out. And then another special thanks to my first cousin once removed, I believe. A fully amazing uh, Ren Krell, uh, who was really uh, who is a retired uh, Baltimore public librarian and was really instrumental in getting us 
um, event set up. So, and then thank you also to Tracy Diamond here at the library and Yane uh, Becerra also for, uh, for getting us started. Okay, so um, it's really good to be at a public library. I love giving talks at public libraries. When I was a kid, the public library saved my life. Um, and not metaphorically. <laughs> uh, actually, not like, like I was lost and then I read books and then I was found. No. I've read a lot of books since and it hasn't helped. Um, but um, So I was growing up in the 70s and 80s in a pretty sketchy part of Chicago, um, going to school with kids like Joey Schutz. Um, who was uh, six foot two, two hundred and thirty pounds in the fourth grade? Um, switchblade coat, uh, switchblade uh, in the tube socks, and um, full feathered hair, and uh, liked to hang people by their underwear on the iron fence uh, outside of the school. And so, back in what I would call the Schutz years, um, this is and this is also uh, being a parent right now in this hyper-programmed, overprotective era. Like I'm just in shock that, like back in those years, he just let the kids out in the street, and there was like no grown-up, you know, robotics program after school, anything. No grown-ups really. Um, it was just kind of like shark release. But I found my system, which was that I could get my coat faster than anyone else, run two blocks to the Chicago Public Library branch, and get into the library before Joey Schutz got out there. <laughs> and there's this uh, photograph that appeared in one of the um, uh, city neighborhood newspapers in Chicago about this time, uh, and it shows uh, this incredible uh, ch children's librarian, Mrs. Freeman, I still remember her really well, um, and she's there, and I'm kind of looking over her shoulder, and she's showing me like Treasure Island or something, and um, it's really adorable picture. But in my tiny brain, really, I was just calculating how long I had to wait there until Joey Schutz came outside. And that's the beginning of a lifelong love of books. <laughs> so to, to public libraries, it's really great to be here. So um, the book, this book, The Death and Life of Ida Hernandez, uh, it came out of uh, my time and work doing immigrant rights activism in Eastern Washington. Um, but also it came out of um, time I spent living and working as an activist on the U.S.-Mexico border back in the early and mid-1990s, um, which was right when the, the new immigration enforcement paradigm that we are seeing today blowing up in the headlines every single day, uh, right when that was just taking shape, just beginning to take shape. Um, and that is where we begin today. On the border, 11 years ago, perched in between the U.S. and Mexico, between life and death, a uh, Mexican ambulance is speeding towards the port of entry in Arizona. Ida's face is swollen and purple. Her arms are torn. She is bleeding from nine stab wounds in the abdomen and torso. And the ambulance races along the latest border wall. On the left is Agua Prieta, where Ida was born. On the right, Douglas, Arizona, where she'd lived her life from age eight until age 20, when just about a month earlier, a tiny misstep had led to her deportation. And these two towns have been so tightly intertwined, so closely connected for so long, that some people just call them Douglas Prieta. It's one community. 
this is a place where language and families and culture and commerce and even government blurt the border every single day. Um, uh, residents who aren't much older than Ida at this point, folks in their, maybe in their 30s, um, remember a time when they would play summer baseball games and home plate would be in the United States and the outfield would be in Mexico. But it's 2008 and 15 years of bipartisan border hardening have driven a wedge between these two communities. Um, but emergency medical transfers across the border are still routine unless something goes wrong. And Frank Honey, a Douglas uh, paramedic, watches as everything goes wrong as the Mexican ambulance pulls into the port of entry and unloads. Officers surround Ida's gurney, refusing to let her pass. Family members stream into the port of entry from both sides, yelling and arguing. And someone knocks into the gurney, and Ida shrieks awake, please, I have a US citizen son. Let me pass. And there's a, a stunned silence. And shoppers coming back from the, to Mexico from the Walmart in Arizona stop, and they stare. And the paramedic sees his opportunity and whisks Ida out of one of the most heavily secured places in the American Southwest. And a little bit later, Arizona Lifeline 2 lifts off and from the JCPenney parking lot, and it sets a course towards a hospital in Tucson. And as it rises, uh, it skims over black slag heaps that are physical remnants of a much more prosperous time in this town. It skims over high-tech surveillance towers. It skims over what, at the time, was the country, if not the world's largest border patrol station. And then it soars past the last immigration highway checkpoint, and it breaks free of the border. And the paramedic looks down at his clipboard for the first time. And he sees Ida's name for the first time. And he thinks that he's done everything he can, but that Ida is not going to make it. <coughs> she does survive. Um, and I won't say how now, uh, but weeks later, uh, she returns to Douglas, Arizona. And she is sutured and stitched, and she's twisted by this pain that goes far beyond her physical wounds in ways that she hasn't yet begun to comprehend. And she kneels down, and she holds her son, Gabriel, as tight as her wounds allow. And she looks into his eyes, and she promises, she says, Gabriel, I will never leave you again. And that is when the hardest part of her story begins. So this is a book about the border we have created. It's a book about trauma, and it's about the courageous struggles of young immigrants who are fighting for survival and justice on that border that we have made. And it centers primarily on the life of one young woman, Ida Hernandez. Um, and most of it takes place while Ida is in her late teens, early 20s, and she's trying to do typical things, right? She's trying to finish high school, She's watching Friends on TV in Arizona and dreaming of someday living in New York City. Um, she sets her sight on a dance scholarship. She drinks a little too much. She makes some mistakes. 
Um, and she's coming to terms with her bisexuality. Normal stuff. Except that she is growing up undocumented in Douglas during the 1990s and 2000s, just as policies that are crafted far from the border, with little grounding in the, in the lived reality of life on the border, or, or the realities of migration, come crashing down on this town and place it at the center of the storm of immigration debates for the next 20 years or so, uh, and make Douglas, Arizona, one of the most heavily policed small towns in the United States. And Ida is also growing up poor, uh, because Douglas is a mostly Mexican-American town that is still reeling from years of disinvestment um, that began when Reagan-era anti-union uh, plant closures uh, laid waste to what had been a vibrant, upwardly mobile, unionized Mexican-American working class. Um, since its founding in 1901, Douglas had, life in Douglas, had revolved around the Phelps Dodge copper smelter. Um, and Mexican-American labor struggles in this town had given the place a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose, um, and it ushered in years of decades of rising wages um, and put a mark on U.S. labor history. In fact, it was Mexican-American workers fighting in the smelter in Douglas that won the landmark Supreme Court case in the early 1940s that was the cornerstone for the rise of the power of organized labor in the post-war period. But in 1987, the year Ida was born, Phelps Dodge closed uh, the smelter uh, and fled to less uh, um, union-friendly lands. And the bad air cleared overnight, the sulfurous smog cleared overnight, and the good jobs disappeared, and the town was never the same again. And so why am I uh, telling this very non-immigration, non-border uh, aspect of the history of Douglas uh, in this talk? Uh, for two reasons. One is that, um, first is because I think that around the United States, there's a, a, a kind of a stereotypical association of deindustrialization and working class decline with white Rust Belt communities um, and cities. Um, and it's easy for, as a result of this, it's easy for outsiders to see a rural Mexican American town like Douglas, um, see the poverty there as just an eternal feature of that place, just a natural way that that town is, um, rather than something that has been imposed and that has a history. Um, and we know that while white working class decline uh, and uh, elicits elegies and hand wringings and calls for solutions, uh, brown and black working class decimation tends to elicit police and prisons. Uh, and that is exactly what happened in Douglas, only with a unique border twist. Um, and I think it's important to make that connection between this border town and larger stories that you, know, you uh, probably see here in Baltimore as well. Um, and second, I would argue that it's impossible to understand the way folks in uh, this mostly Mexican-American town have responded to the militarization of life in their town over the past 20-some years without understanding that history of labor struggles uh, and that history of of what I would call racialized disinvestment over the years. And in the, in the years covered in this book, 
Douglas goes from being a copper company town to being a homeland security company town. Okay, but back to Ida. So Ida is growing up poor and undocumented uh, in this context, and that causes her first death, what uh, a sociologist might call a social death. And what I mean by that is that Ida is fully a part of her community. She is an active maker of her community, uh, and yet she's denied real membership in that community because of her poverty, because of her immigration status. She's a citizen without citizenship, and she's cut off from rights and opportunities that should be hers. Um, and we know that because of this, she's going to pay a high price um, for making the kinds of mistakes that any kid growing up right anywhere uh, makes. Um, Ida has to fight for her life several more times after that border scene that I just described uh, in the book. Um, but the real journey, the, the kind of the suspense and the uncertainty at the heart of this book is about a young woman who is risking everything to see if she can get from that, that place of social death to a place where she isn't just surviving the border we have made. She's actually <coughs> thriving and she's truly alive. So there's lots of spoilers and twists in this book, um, and I don't want to tell too much of the story. Um, it's nonfiction, um, but uh, it, it keeps getting mistaken as a, uh, for a novel. In fact, um, the New York Times and NPR had to, uh, or sorry, not the New York Times, NPR and Mother Jones had to issue retractions of, uh, or changes in their website because they called it a novel in their reviews, and I was like, it's nonfiction. I paid $9,000 for a fact checker out of my own pocket. <laughs> uh, but I've come to appreciate that, um, that as a compliment. And so there's lots of twists and turns uh, in this book. Um, and so what I want to mostly talk about tonight is kind of how this book came about, um, how we wrote the book, uh, and talk about a few of the conclusions that arise from it. Um, so I first went to the U.S.-Mexico border in the fall of 1993. Uh, and I worked there for four years, which seemed like a long time when I was in my 20s. Um, uh, relatively short time, but an incredibly formative time, personally, intellectually, politically. Uh, I met my wife there. We were part of this uh, incredible binational um, activist community. And um, I kept returning after those four years as a researcher, as a teacher bringing my students, as a volunteer, uh, over and over again for two decades. Um, our, my daughter was born there unexpectedly, actually, uh, on a trip to the border, and it just felt right because, and some of you may know this, um, but there is a beauty and a richness and a creativity to life in the borderlands that just gets completely ignored when the news, when the media talks about border crisis. Yeah. Um, but we also know that for the past 27 years or so, that beautiful, creative, rich place has been turned into a sacrifice zone, right? A sacrifice zone for uh, the country's uh, vilest fears and hatreds and its inability to deal with immigration in a real way. Um, and, and so that background, that context is really important to understanding this book. So I'm going to take a minute to talk about that, 
For some of you, this may be a recap, but I think it bears repeating. Um, and the, we'll start in the fall of 1993. And the fall, fall of 1993 was a formative time, not just for me, because that's when I went to the border for the first time. Um, but the fall of 1993 was a formative time for the border itself. Um, and I won't date folks at this point by asking how many people remember the fall of 1993. Um, but unbeknownst to all of us, even those of us on the border at the time, uh, a brand new paradigm of border and immigration of enforcement was getting tested out. Um, and it was getting tested out in El Paso um, during that fall of 1993. Um, and in fact, by a fluke, uh, my wife and I happened to be working in El Paso that week that it began. It was the week of September 19, 1993. Uh, and the way it worked was that the Border Patrol Sector Chief, uh, Reyes, um, who is following a, a Clinton-era INS strategy blueprint, took his agents off of their mobile patrols out in the countryside and simply lined them up one after another along the most frequently crossed part of the urban El Paso Juarez border. And his idea was that if you completely shut down the relatively easy part of the border <coughs> to cross, the urban part of the border to cross, it's going to force migrants out into the more treacherous deserts and mountains outside of town. That's going to make border crossing more dangerous. That's going to make border crossing more expensive. And here's where he starts to think like an economist instead of a person. Um, no offense to any economists. Um, but he assumes that, as a result of that, fewer people will cross the border. Um, this strategy would come to be called prevention through deterrence. Uh, and this was the government deliberately weaponizing the desert in the service of deadly deterrence. Um, and the anthropologist Jason de Leon um, had uncovered uh, government documents um, from early on in this period of this strategy, um, and I'll, par the, I'll paraphrase one, uh, and it basically said, um, an early sign of success of this strategy will be increasing deaths along the southern border. <coughs> Over the next 27 years, the government has deployed a whole series of weapons of deterrence, even if we never named them as such, right? So, Picture Border Patrol agents slashing water bottles left by humanitarian groups in the desert. Um, picture kids dying in cages. Picture uh, vaccines being withheld from folks in detention. Picture the heaping of criminal punishments on top of civil, civil immigration matters. When you, when you see that kind of like, that jumble of cruelty that we get to see in the news today, um, and it just seems like this mess of hate and cruelty and you can't make sense of it. When you see those things today, know that they are not aberrations. They're not the works of bad apples. They're not just artifacts of the Trump administration. They are the results of a 27-year bipartisan strategy designed to make crossing the border more dangerous, deadly, and cruel. Supposedly to deter migrants. And one of the themes that runs through the death and life of Ida Hernandez uh, is that prevention through deterrence has weaponized violence against women as much as it has weaponized the desert. And 
Um, that's not to say that uh, women in border communities experience more gender violence than women in other communities. That's not at all clear, uh, no matter how much Trump talks about rapists and murderers. Um, and certainly not all violence against women in the borderland uh, arises from immigration policy. What I'm trying to say is that our approach to immigration enforcement knowingly cultivates and benefits from women's heightened vulnerability to gender violence. Okay? And this can take very um, almost quotidian, mundanely violent forms. Um, for example, uh, several times in the book, um, abusive men uh, tell a woman, sure, go ahead, call the police on me. You know, you'll call the police. The Border Patrol will also respond to that call because they listen to the, the police radio. And I'll get a slap on the wrist, but you'll get deported. Right? Uh, it can also take uh, fairly blunt extreme forms. Um, and uh, just maybe a little bit of a, a poll here. How many of you all have, uh, or, or I should say, how many of you all are, are willing to admit that you've watched the Sicario movies? A couple people have watched the Sicario movies. How about Narcos on Netflix? Okay, a few people, okay. So to watch that genre of movies and television, you would think that violent cartels exploiting women on the U.S.-Mexico border were the enemies of the U.S. government, right? But by the strict logic of prevention through deterrence, right, a strategy in which the idea was to make border crossing more dangerous and deadly, those cartels are our allies. They're force multipliers. Or another way to say this is that we have outsourced some of the worst violence of prevention through deterrence to some really horrific organized criminal groups. Um, and then we act shocked um, by their savagery. And I think the point here is to remember that um, the border isn't broken. The border is actually working more or less as intended. And that is the problem that we need to confront and work on. So back in the 1990s, the strategy spread really quickly. Um, it clicked instantly with President Clinton's desire to take a page out of the Republicans' tough on crime dog whistle playbook. Um, and it turned out that ever more spectacular, ever more expensive forms of deterrence um, had bipartisan political appeal. Um, and just to give you a sense of the magnitude of this, uh, for the book, I calculated that um, we have spent the inflation-adjusted equivalent of two Marshall Plans for the reconstruction of Europe after World War II, pursuing prevention through deterrence-based border and immigration enforcement since it rolled out in the early 1990s. And of course, none of this achieved its stated goal of deterring migrants. Deterrence does a lot of things politically in this country, it does a lot of things economically in this country. Uh, it's productive for many people and companies, um, but it does not deter. And we've, we've been able to see that and show that through all kinds of different research methodologies, methodologies fairly clearly now that we're almost three decades into this. 
Um, instead, by the 1990s, by the late 1990s, what the strategy had begun to do was funnel a whole continent's worth of migration from Texas, from California, straight into the deserts of southern Arizona, the most deadly deserts along the border. And one of the very first places that strategy came crashing down in August 1997 was the twin border communities of Douglas, Arizona and Agua Prieta, Sonora, where Ida was growing up. And much of this book is set. And people in the towns reeled uh, as this happened. And politicians and the media and militias descended on their town. And people really chafed against the militarization of their communities. Um, they chafed against the imposition of these wedges between the two halves of their community. Um, but they had come to depend in important ways on border security and in security spending. Um, just to give you a sense of that, by 2014, one in seven adult men in Douglas, employed adult men in Douglas, worked for law enforcement. Okay? Um, I don't know what it is in Baltimore, but I, I can give you a, a I think in, in New York City, for example, it's one in a hundred, so fairly significant. Um, there's been really excellent research and reporting recently on what we could call a border security industrial complex that has taken form on the border. Um, I, I recommend the work of the journalist Todd Miller. You may have seen some of that. Um, and this work, though, is largely focused on for-profit detention and big corporations like Boeing and, and Amazon that make money off of, uh, off of detention and immigration enforcement. Uh, and that's really good. It's, I really appreciate it. And Todd is a good friend of mine. Um, but uh, we can't stop just talking about the greedy uh, giant corporations uh, when we talk about this. Um, we need to also be attuned to the city budgets that depend on Department of Homeland Security uh, grants. Um, for example, even far from the border, up in uh, eastern Washington where I live, the town of Yakima. So King County is Seattle, a liberal Seattle. Uh, they organized and uh, made it so that ICE, Immigration Customs Enforcement, could no longer use the King County Airport for deportation flights. So. ICE moved deportation flights to Yakima in conservative eastern Washington, this small town. So now East, uh, Yakima is the, the hub for uh, Pacific Northwest deportation flights. And there's organizing, and people want to, to, to stop that. But the town officials are worried that if they piss off the federal government, they'll lose that crucial funding for, that allows small towns to keep open rural airports. Um, we can talk about um, small businesses that depend on border security and insecurity spending. Um, I looked it up this morning, actually. In Baltimore, there are 29 um, companies, small, medium businesses, um, that uh, depend or that have used, uh, that have contracted with ICE um, over the past few years um, for various things. Um, you've probably heard about John Hopkins' long involvement with ICE. Um, but, you know, things like Price Modern Furniture Store um, that provides, uh, that outfits detention centers um, for ICE. Um, in Douglas, Arizona, in a place like Douglas, Arizona, that's been hit by deindustrialization, we also need to think about that Douglas High graduate 
who she graduates from high school and she looks around her town and Border Patrol is the only good job in this town. Certainly it's the only good job with benefits, it's the only good job with a sense of purpose. Um, you know, we need to talk about a whole diverse way of life that is taking shape that depends on permanent border crisis. Not fixing things on the border, but on the continued crisis on the border. Folks who have a stake in maintaining uh, permanent crisis in different ways. So back in January 2014, um, I went to Douglas and Agua Prieta to try to understand um, how border and immigration enforcement got to be this way and how it could be different. Um, and how the militarization of the border impacted a place and people. Um, and early on in that research, uh, uh, a woman named Rosy Mendoza became one of my main guides to the community. And um, some of you have read the book, and you know uh, she is a badass, formerly undocumented social worker who works with victims of domestic and sexual violence on the border. Um, and her story, actually, her life story figures heavily in the border, uh, in the book, alongside Ida's. Um, but she connected Ida and me, and she encouraged Ida to tell her story. Uh, it took a while for us to finally meet. There's kind of a funny little story in the book that you can read about how we did finally uh, uh, connect. Um, but suffice it to say that um, that Ida and I met for the first time uh, on a wintry day in the 10th Street Park, and we sat by the fountain, and she told me her story. And I had not, up to that point, planned at all to write a book about one person, and much less to put violence against women at the heart of a border book. But after talking with her, uh, I knew that she had this powerful message for everyone who looks at the border from a more privileged position, and that you cannot understand our border policy uh, and our approach to border security without understanding the myriad ways in which it makes women's lives less secure and more exposed to violence. And Ida's story left me shaking on that day in 2014. I mean, it, it still does. It's, it's filled with such intense pain and suffering for those of you who have read it. Um, but the thing that moved me most that day was not the pain, was not the suffering. It was the fierce pride that she conveyed as she told the story. She had this kind of brio and wit and humor uh, and a kind of audacious pride from having survived time and time again by the seat of her pants against huge odds having fought for a place for herself and her son in the United States. Um, and just like amid all of that suffering was this message that the sheer act of surviving the world that we have made on the U.S.-Mexico border is itself a form of dignity and worth that is as valuable as any privileged person's achievement. And that, that really hit me. Um, and later I would read the, the, uh, the writer Hector Tobad, uh, who's a writer I really like, a novelist and journalist. Um, and he has an essay in which he talks about how that spirit of agency and humor and wit 
and Brio uh, is so frequently left out of reporting um, on the border that tends to portray immigrants as passive victim props um, in kind of tragic immigration tales. Um, so I wanted to try to convey that, that spirit. Now, the idea of having uh, someone write a book about you uh, wouldn't necessarily click with everyone. You can think about yourself in that. Um, but it did for Ida. Um, and we talked about this for months. Um, I wavered and worried because that's, I am a worrier. Um, but Ida was, was firm and she said, Aaron, I have been through death already. She said this many times to me. She said, I have dealt with the worst people and institutions you can imagine. And they didn't stop me. And telling my story uh, can be a way to take all of that suffering uh, and turn it into something that can reach people and can make a difference. Um, and over time, she and, and we would also come to realize that telling this story could become a pivotal part of her healing journey as well. Um, yeah, in fact, she and I were just talking about this uh, two days ago, um, how much uh, this has, how much she, the unexpected benefit of this book being kind of how it has uh, changed her vision of herself. We can talk about that later. Um, but uh, from there, from the decision to go forward, the hard work of this research began because um, getting a story that is this sensitive and difficult right, um, as right as we can, um, meant doing many hours of, of interviews with Ida, um, with her family, with her friends, with people whose lives, uh, their paths of their lives crossed with Ida's. Um, it meant cross-checking that work with hundreds of pages of medical and school and court and police um, and uh, other kinds of records. Um, it meant talking with attorneys and physicians and psychiatrists uh, to verify the plausibility of the kinds of stories I was hearing. Um, it meant doing uh, over a hundred interviews with law enforcement and city officials and community organizers in Douglas and Agua Prieta uh, to set the, the background, the context of this place. Um, <laughs> it also meant doing stuff to get details right that uh, I would not have anticipated doing. Um, for example, um, Ida and I watching uh, Chola makeup video <coughs> tutorials on YouTube together. Uh, and I, I think I actually got it now. I could, I could do it. Um, um, or uh, she's living in New York right now. I was in Washington State. I'm on my phone. She's on her phone. And we're looking at Google Street Map together. Um, and I'm like, is that the tree you're talking about? Or is that the tree you're talking about? Um, so really doing that kind of work. Um, and there was another kind of work here, too, that was even more important. Um, and that was that coming into this project as a white man, even someone who has experience in border and immigration work, um, I knew that the, the risks of missing things and misunderstanding things and misrepresenting things um, or exploiting people's stories was, uh, it was very real. And uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about how and whether to do this project um, and what it would mean to do it in an ethical way 
um, and talking with folks about this. And for me, uh, putting that into practice, um, a crucial part of it meant carefully going over drafts of the book with Ida, with uh, her family, uh, with other folks uh, who appear in the book throughout the whole process, making it as collaborative a process as possible, having Ida shape the narrative herself. Um, it also meant getting um, um, engaging really through the whole life of the project with scholars and activists of color, particularly women, um, at every stage, uh, right? Folks who could read the drafts, uh, talk about the project, and really understand, yes, the benefits of a project like this, but also the risks of a project like this in a really immediate way. Um, and the question I usually pose, the first question I pose to folks who are reading these drafts was, you know, should I publish this? Um, very re ready to hear the, the answer no. Um, but as, as it turned out, the kind of encouragement um, and the critique and the feedback that came out of that process really deeply shaped this book um, and made it possible, I think, in many ways. Um, over time, uh, the story and the research um, expanded to include uh, other people uh, whose lives intersected with Ida. So there's Rossi, who I already mentioned. Um, there's Alvaro, who is a self-described Chicano death metal bassist uh, and addict, um, who says that he can uh, help and heal other people, uh, but not himself. There's Katie, uh, who's a Mexican asylum seeker, who's also the sole guardian of two minor siblings um, who have been separated from her at the border um, after they came seeking asylum in the United States after their parents were murdered. Um, and Katie is in immigration detention with Ida in Arizona during part of the book. Um, there's Raul. Uh, who plays an important role in Ida's life, and he is a, a kind of a complicated hero of the 1960s uh, Mexican uh, guerrilla movement. Um, and then finally there's Emma, who's an Ecuadorian college student and LGBTQ activist um, who's seeking asylum in the United States, um, who comes to the United States in a, through a very different kind of way than Ida, um, but her life really intersects with Ida's in an important way. Um, but through it all, um, it remains really uh, grounded in Ida's memories, um, a story told by me, grounded in her memories, surrounded by lots of additional research. And so um, a couple years into the project, well into the research, um, Ida and I started to talk about money. And after a lot of discussion, we decided to split the proceeds of the book in three ways. Um, one part for Ida, one part to uh, an organization on the border that works with victims of domestic and sexual violence on the border. Um, and another third for me to pay for things like uh, travel um, to talks like this and, and paying for the fact checker. Um, um, in the course of this process, whenever uh, I and I met, I made three commitments. Um, and one is that we could stop the project at any time and that Ida, Ida should talk uh, with her family and therapists about whether it was the right thing to be doing, um, and she did that. Um, the second thing was that she would read drafts throughout the whole process, and if she ever, uh, in retrospect, realized that something she had said was embarrassing or she wished she hadn't said it, I would simply take it out of the book. 
Um, and I think both of those commitments and the, the money piece are fairly unusual within the world of journalism. Um, and I've gotten a small amount of grief around those. Um, but coming out of the world of activism and ethnography, um, that kind of practice is much more of the norm. Um, and then the third commitment was that I would do myself, I would do my best to portray uh, her not as a demon or a saint, um, but as a real complex, flawed, brilliant human being, so that her story would matter in itself, not just as um, an illustration for a set of political arguments. And I think, whew, in the end, that was a really important commitment for me, because if I'm honest, when I went to Douglas, I was looking for stories to illustrate political arguments. Um, and it was really only through that process of kind of sinking myself into this research and doing this, writing this difficult emotional story that um, I came to realize that um, the immediate political critiques are in the book, and that's good, um, but that the, the, the value uh, and the power of a story that bears witness to Ida's life um, goes far beyond that. <coughs> I just want to say one more thing in conclusion here. Um, and that is that I was half aware of it um, when I started this project. It took a while to really understand it, um, but Ida was guiding us towards a different kind of immigrant story and a different way of thinking about belonging in the United States. Um, let me just unpack that a little bit. So first of all, um, you have to understand that there is actually, there's a lot of pressure when writing about immigration for a commercial audience um, to tell stories that reinforce American national fairy tales, right? Of hard work and redemption and the nation of immigrants, um, American dream. Um, the novelist Madeline Fitch talks about the, the kind of the selling allure of stories where deserving innocent others uh, endure incredible violence and hardship in order to come out and triumph it in the end, um, thus reassuring mostly affluent white readers that the United States still is a place where individual hard work pays off in the end and progress reigns. And Ida's is a different kind of story. Um, it's not one with a guaranteed happy ending. And yet it is still filled with power and inspiration. It's just that that power, the empowerment, doesn't come from achieving and redeeming the American dream. Uh, it comes from the choice to struggle on in the face of the structural denial of that dream. Second, in terms of thinking about belonging in this country, um, it's difficult to overstate how much of our immigration debates how much of our idea of the United States as a nation of immigrants turns on this impossible binary between, on one hand, the flawless, perfect, high-achieving, good immigrant who maybe deserves sympathy and rights, and then, on the other hand, the criminal immigrant, the bad immigrant, who deserves all the punishment she gets. Um, as Rosie Mendoza often says, actually often says to Ida, uh, humans make mistakes, immigrants can't. Um, but Ida, telling her story, she doesn't disavow her imperfect past that day in the 10th Street Park. She doesn't solicit my pity. Um, her story just brimmed with 
pride and sufficiency. And I think that was really challenging us to wrestle with the fact that people whose messy human lives don't fit into that impossible good-bad binary, which is to say, right, most people, <laughs> um, are still active makers and members of their communities, regardless of their mistakes, regardless of whether they fit external images of innocence or of achievement. And, and kind of since I'm an academic, I want to end in more theoretical terms, which is to say that this is really a call for, for rejecting the deservingness discourses that underpin our immigration debates, that define our immigration policy, along with their, their driving assumption that it's only natives and the government who, get the, who are the sole source of legitimate membership in the nation who are the sole deciders of who belongs in the nation and who doesn't belong. Um, it's really a call for us to create an immigration system that acknowledges the fact that membership in the nation is forged through many different sources, including the very choice, Ida's choice, to struggle on and to survive in the face of systemic exclusion. So I want to just end by reading a short bit here. Um, and it's just so you can get a sense of the narrative. It's a very short piece, I promise. Um, and um, I think this, I like this piece for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it's short. Um, but also, so there's a lot in this book about the kind of horrific conditions in immigration detention. And when I was writing that, really, I guess just like two and a half years ago, um, I felt like I had to be so careful to document everything, right? I couldn't interview folks that Ida was in detention with in this holding cell. Um, so, so I needed to find photographs that journalists had dug up I needed from surveillance cameras. I needed to find testimony from lawsuits about this detention center. Um, I had to back everything up because I didn't believe that I didn't think that people would believe this shit. <laughs> like, I did not think that people would believe the things that Ida was saying happened to her in immigration detention. And I will say that now, two and a half years out, thanks to the work of incredible uh, immigrants and immigrant rights activists and journalists, um, we know a lot more about conditions in immigration detention, and people probably would believe it. <laughs> uh, that, those stories now. But, and that's good, that's really important, but at the same time, there's still this tendency in reporting on immigration detention to paint folks in detention as kind of passive victims of the system. And I really like this piece. It takes place in the Eloy uh, Detention, the Corrections Corporation of America Eloy Detention Center in Arizona. Um, and it really gives you a sense of some of the humor and the communities and the resistance that forms uh, within immigration detention. <coughs> Inside the courtroom, Ida felt meek and intimidated. Over the course of seven preliminary hearings, she had not said much more than, yes, your honor, and thank you, your honor. Outside, though, Ida had come into her own. 
She still helped her podmates translate immigration documents for free, and a number of them had begun to trust her judgment. For 85% of them, she was the closest thing to an immigration attorney they had. Emma, of course, loved the way the curly-haired Mexicana sucked in her cheeks and stuck out her jaw in response to every new outrage from the Corrections Corporation of America. And when prison officials cut the women's meager shampoo and toilet paper rations in half, Ida truly became a leader. This is not okay, she told Katie. We can't let them get away with this. Katie hesitated, reluctant to get involved, but Ida was right. ICE and CCA wanted prisoners to purchase high-priced toiletries from the commissary. Many women in the pod simply couldn't spend several dollars worth of commissary credit for hotel-sized shampoo. Some had no credit at all. Think about her, Ida said, pointing to a, a Mayan indigenous woman from Guatemala, barely 18 with no outside support. Even prisoners with access to commissary credit pinched pennies. Family members worked hard on the outside for that money, and Western Union claimed steep fees for transfers to prisoners' accounts. Like Ida, most women in the pod saved commissary credit for phone calls, tampons, and edible food. Ramen noodles, peanut butter, and cookies provided crucial supplements to the cafeteria's pasty rounds of pan, pasta, and papas. In the end, Katie looked on while Ida wrote a letter of protest and circulated through the pod collecting signatures. About a dozen women refused to sign, fearing retaliation, but Ida persuaded most of the pod to join in. The, later, the letter provoked quick action. A two-man team of ICE officers responded to the complaint, slapping Ida's letter on one of the pod's steel tables. What's going on here? Outraged women erupted in Spanish opprobrium all at once, and the agents visibly tensed. Then Ida's voice cut through the noise, explaining in English the hardships the reductions created. Yeah, but we implemented this in the mail section with no problem, one of the officers countered. Why is it the mail section uses so much less toilet paper than you women? <laughs> The retort slipped out before Ida could think. Because you shake and we wipe. <laughs> One official couldn't stifle a laugh at this, but his partner plowed forward. Well, what about the shampoo? Why do you use so much more shampoo than the men? Ida said nothing this time. Instead, not breaking eye contact, she removed a hair tie, shook out her long curls, and the other women followed suit, waving their thick manes like protest flags. Thank you. Okay, so now we have time for a couple of um, questions. If anyone has any questions, um, we are podcasting this, so we just ask that you wait for the microphone to come to you so that the microphone can pick up the sound. Thank you for what was really an excellent talk. And very Thank you. Moving. Um, I have two sort of specific questions. One is, um, <clears throat> Why did, um, 
Hang on just a minute. Well, why did people give you grief about the money situation? Sure. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's only been a, a couple journalists who <coughs> mentioned um, things. For example, the New York Times review of the book, which is, a, I think, a, a fairly positive review of the book. Um, the journalist who wrote that um, you know, kind of said, no, this is not very usual in journalism to, to, to have proceeds going to, um, to, the, to the folks whose story it is. Um, I mean, I think that they're coming out of a very specific kind of set of journalistic uh, ethics and practices um, that believes in that uh, by maintaining a certain kind of distance and objectivity, you can get access to a particular kind of, of truth, um, and that uh, in involving proceeds in the story can taint the story, um, kind of shape the way the person's life uh, the path of the person's life or the way the person tells the story. And that's, I think, and for very good reason, often. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's not the world I come out of, but I can understand the reasons for it. Um, you know, coming out of ethnography and activism, particularly ethnography, um, there is no sense that you can ever uh, achieve that kind of objective truth, right? Our relationships are always shaping how we interact with each other, how we're, inter uh, you know, placed in power systems, um, and that our emotions and our relationships are an important way of knowing the world. Um, and then, in fact, that relationship uh, makes the story better and deeper and richer. Um, so it's, it's really kind of two different worlds of, of thinking. But, you know, for, it came down, for me, the idea was that, you know, Ida had done real tremendous labor in, in producing this, this work. Um, and the, the money from this book could make a real difference. Um, and it has made a, a big difference in, in where she is right now. So that's kind of, in the end, I opted in that direction, even though I could understand the, the reasons why journalists might be um, not so into that. My second question is, what do Amazon and Boeing, what are they doing out there? Uh, well, Boeing, so in Douglas, Arizona, Boeing back in the 2000s was the creator of this uh, $2 billion boondoggle uh, uh, was going to be the, uh, what did they call it, um, virtual fence, something like that. I remember being in the Douglas Border Patrol Command Center when this program was just beginning and they had this big screen, like some kind of you know, action movie, and they were purporting that you, know, you could see anything bigger than a, a dog moving across the landscape for this vast terrain using this radar system. It turned out that it really didn't work. Um, and they ended up uh, dismantling it, is my understanding. Um, so Boeing does that kind of work. Um, Amazon has been uh, involved, and in fact, Amazon workers have been really pressuring Amazon, the Amazon Corporation to get out of these contracts, um, but has been doing various kinds of data processing um, work for ICE. Very, using its kind of skill with algorithms. Here we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Thank you for the work, and thanks to Ida also. Um, I'm just wondering, I've been following this border policy issue 
since around, not too closely, but since around 2004 when Bush came out with the, uh, his guest worker policy mm -hmm. idea. And I'm just wondering if you have any insights about, or Ida does, <laughs> uh, about what would be a humane policy for the border. Um, you believe in open borders or just whatever you have to say on sure, that. I know sure. it's amorphous. <laughs> a great big question. A great question and a big question. Um, I mean, I think in terms of general principles to think about, um, one is that it will have to begin with foreign policy um, because, you know, um, as Central American uh, asylum-seeking activists now uh, say often, we're here because you were there. Um, we don't have a crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border. We have a crisis in Central America that in many ways is the direct product of a century of, of you know, uh, banana company coups and Cold War destabilization and the so-called war on drugs. Um, so uh, kind of starting and, and, and trade agreements, uh, so starting with uh, a foreign policy um, that is dealing with the United States' imperial projection into the world. Um, another, you know, activists also talk about the importance of not just immigrant rights, but the right to remain home. Um, and the United States, through things like the so-called war on drugs, does quite a bit to make it impossible for people to stay home. So that would be one general principle. I think another general principle is uh, rejecting immigration reform proposals that offer uh, rights to a small group of people, a virtuous, high-achieving uh, group of people in return for throwing large numbers of other people under the bus um, and militarizing border communities even more. I think a third general principle is the idea of community membership, right? That people forge membership in the nation by being part of, of their communities. Um, and so some kind of concrete, specific um, proposals that have come around uh, in that area is, for example, a statute of limitation on deportability, right? People who have made their lives in a community for three, four years, and this is something we used to have um, for a period in the late 19th century, um, that after, you know, that you shouldn't have to live your whole life in, in fear of, of being deported. Um, and that uh, you kind of make your membership by, by being a member in communities. Um, you know, um, and then in terms of the open border question, I, I like to be provocative and call for far more open borders. Um, and I think that that would be a safer and more secure border than what we have now. Because what we have now um, is uh, this prevention through deterrence model, mm -hmm. which takes migration that's going to happen and puts it out into these dangerous, uncontrolled areas in remote areas controlled by organized <coughs> crime and rogue police forces. And a quote-unquote more open border, which by that I mean a border that would bring immigration, migration back into the world of visas and inspections and ports of entry by making ample visas available for people who are coming to the United States to work, um, or to reunite with families or to flee violence, um, would in fact make the border far more secure and known. Um, so thinking about how we uh, how we can move in that direction um, is another key piece. Um, 
There's some good proposals out there. In fact, just today, while the articles of impeachment were being uh, issued, uh, several Democratic uh, Congress people um, put forth a bill called the um, New Way Forward Bill, the New Way Forward Act. I think I had that right. Um, and I, I don't know a ton of details about that, but a key piece of it is that it seems to repeal uh, big chunks of the 1996 immigration laws that Clinton really pushed for um, that are why we have mandatory uh, detention of migrants, that are why we have expedited removal, which is this form of uh, deporting people in which low-level law enforcement agents act as judge, jury, and executioner in high-speed um, deportation processes that have no right to an attorney and no right to appeal. Um, repealing the 1996 bills, uh, immigration laws would also get rid of a lot of the, the ways we've made immigration hearings more punitive and taken away discretion from immigration judges um, to, to grant people immigration status in meritorious cases. Um, so that bill, I think, is a really exciting um, you know, set of uh, <coughs> principles. At least, you know, I've only had the, the most minimal look at it this morning, but um, it seems to be a really promising blueprint to, to work from. Thank you so much for sharing, and thank you all so much for joining us this evening. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.